Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for coming to the Literary Uses of Fantasy. This is a bit of a stealth program item in the sense that it is also an episode of the Coot Street podcast. The Coot Street podcast has been going for four years now and is an ongoing discussion about science fiction, fantasy, and other things of interest. We, we did a live performance of the podcast in August of this year in London at Worldcon, and it seemed to go down quite well, and we thought that we would bring it to Whatever Virginia. this is, yes. <laughs> whatever this is. <laughs> or wherever, yeah. wherever we are and however far away we are from civilization. I'd like to first start by introducing all of our wonderful guests. First of all, Peter Straub. That was, that was semi-spontaneous applause. Hey, it's better than I got. Mm -hmm. uh, Caitlin R. Kiernan. And you don't have to clap at all. That's Gary Wolf at the end. He's one of the people on the podcast. Now, this is, as you know, a serious and august occasion, the World Fantasy Convention. We are actually dripping cobwebs as we sit. And normally, we would commence the podcast with a rather large, silly, loud introduction. In the interests of decorum, though, we will omit it here and add it by tape later on. <laughs> That, that seems to be much more of a world fantasy convention thing. That is, oh. unless you all disagree. Well, I mean... Yeah. What, 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 are the, what are the silly oh, Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay, do you... I think we have to do the motel six. Yeah. We have to move on? No, we're silly going to do loud. the introduction. Okay. I don't have one written. You don't okay. have one written have ever. Okay. <laughs> Where are we? In Arlington, Virginia. And now, coming to you live from Arlington, Virginia, it's Jonathan Strawn and Gary K. Wolf with special guests Peter Straub and Caitlin Arnkiernan on the Coot Street Podcast! Yeah. Yeah. And as always, Much better. in a vain hope, I will now throw over to the other side of the table and hope that Gary, with his wad of notes that you can see piled on the table, yeah. mm -hmm. yes, is ready to commence the podcast. The... Um, we were asked to give a title for this, uh, and uh, we came up with the literary uses of fantasy because that sounded like a title where we could do anything we wanted to with it, essentially. But um, but, I, but there's also something interesting about these particular guests who have both been on the podcast, in fact, have been on the podcast together, uh, and both are writers who have written a wide variety of fiction from what was, I was going to say from what was once called horror, we could talk about that phrase for a while. But also fictions that are, uh, to use a word that Peter's used, extreme fictions, some of which don't really edge into fantasy at all. So I guess one of the questions that I would have for whoever wants to start is, is there a point at which you even notice whether a story is becoming a fantasy story or a, or, or a supernatural story? Or Caitlin? You want, Peter, 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 Peter. Okay, always. Um, that's... Uh, that's a very um, amb amb ambiguous uh, question, or I, I rather, I mean, my, my answer has to be very ambiguous. Because when I start a story, I, that's not what I'm thinking of. Um, I'm, I'm not trying to categorize the thing. It's simply what comes to mind, or even better, what really wants to be written, which has seized me sort of and say, says, stop everything else now and sit down and write this. Um, very often, the, uh, the, uh, those um, uh, story ideas are 
fade off in, into the fantastic. Uh, but then those, the, those ideas um, often seem a little too familiar, and so I don't do them. Uh, when I'm writing actual novels, which is what I really do most of the time, um, I'm aware when I'm when I'm when I'm stepping off the you know the the, the literal plane into something else, but uh, but I want it all to seem real. I'm, I I want I want it all to be presented as though it's uh, part of the world we see and feel all around us. I honestly don't know how to answer the question. Um, I'm uncomfortable with the idea of dividing literary fiction from genre fiction. I've never been comfortable with genre, with the idea of mm -hmm. genre, with the what I think of as the ghetto of genre, and certainly the ghetto of horror. Yeah. Um, I write, and this is what I write, and I don't really know why this is what I write. Um, when I set out to write my last two novels, um, The Red Tree and The Drowning Girl, I didn't really set out to write horror novels. I didn't set out to write fantasy novels. In both cases, I set out to write novels about insanity. And it so happens that straying into fantasy is extremely useful in writing about schizophrenia, mm -hmm. um, in writing about the other problems I was addressing. And yeah, I don't know. It's like well, no, you 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 use exactly the word I wanted you to use. You said extremely useful, yeah. and I, I I think that what I'm trying to get at in the question is the idea that when we talk about things like fantasy and horror, we tend to think of them as genres, as categories, as mailboxes, and yet we could also think about them as devices, as instruments, as part of the toolbox. Uh, so that there's a point in a story in which, as you say, fantasy is a useful way for getting at mental disturbances. That's exactly right. Um, there, there were, of course, um, a, a number of years in which I was very consciously r writing the sort of fiction called horror at the time, and it still is, I, I, I suppose, though, though it's become rather less interesting to, to, to the world at large. However, after a while, it began it seemed so limited to me, and. I, I came to a conclusion rather similar to what Caitlin just said, that all of that kind of material, that coloration, those emotions, those um, sort of visionary moments could be apprehended by someone in a kind of extreme situation, either schizophrenia or extreme stress, mm -hmm. uh, by... by having the characters enter those states, one can do anything at all uh, that's imaginative and valid and uh, have, 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 it, have it ring true. Um, there are still people I've learned who will describe anything that I do, certainly. And I, alas, and it, most things Kate, Caitlin will do also as genre. So I think in order to have any kind of pride, you have to say, well, okay, it's genre. Get over it. You know, <laughs> it's it's not uh, to 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 call something genre doesn't mean it isn't serious. It doesn't mean it isn't serious fiction. Um, it doesn't mean it isn't literature. For God's sake, you know. <laughs> something I very intentionally did with the Red Tree and the Drowning Girl is, you can read either book 
And it's kind of a, I mean, it's the question of the reading protocol, of the paradigm that the reader brings to it, whether you read these novels as fantasy or not. There's no way to prove in The Red Tree or in The Drowning Girl that fantastic events have taken place. They're highly subjective views from what people call unreliable narrators. Mm-hmm. I, would, I would argue that all narrators are inherently unreliable um, because of the nature of memory. Yeah. But um, it was like I really kind of wanted, while I'm talking about hauntings, while I'm talking about the nature of hauntings, um, the nature of ghosts, I'm also very determined to create the sort of subjectivity that you see in actual, I just, I get lost in the subject. You said, (laughs) but you're always saying things that are exactly uh, right, because now you're talking about the readers and how a reader approaches a work. And that suggests an idea which which, uh, Peter and I and and Jonathan and I have talked about, and you and I haven't talked in a while, that to, to what extent is genre a function not of what the writer does or even what the marketing department does, but what the reader does with the text when they receive it? Is genre a construction of readers? Well, I'm very... Um, the intent of the writer means a lot to me. You know, I, it, it's very important to me to communicate in the book what I want to communicate in the book and that the reader receive what I want to communicate in the book. But it's also inescapable that, and, and these two books are great cases, mm-hmm. um, that the reader will see the book as the reader will see the book through the way they've learned to read, through what... They think of me as, if I'm thought of as a horror writer, if I'm thought of as a fantasy mm-hmm. writer, well, that's what they expect. And so that expectation effect molds the way they receive the that's book. That's my point, yes. So even mm-hmm. though I can go through and show you how n- nothing definitely was fantastic, mm-hmm. there's still this impression that it is because I'm dealing with those subjects. Yeah. Um, and I'm not, and you know, I've gotten flack before because people are saying, well, you're, you think you're better than us, you know. Because you don't want to be a genre writer. Oh, really? You don't want to call yourself a horror writer. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not it at all. It's just that I feel these are very, I think, you know, as Peter was saying, these can be very confining, suffocating boxes to get stuck in. Mm-hmm. I can think of a... Jonathan, did you want to... I was just going to say, are they actually confining boxes or are they a, a starting point, a leaping off point for something? Because I'm never convinced that the reader is insufficiently intelligent, aware, or perceptive that they can't adjust their perceptions and their viewpoint as they encounter the text. Well, that's a, a, a lovely point of view, but, but I, I, I think it often doesn't hold. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very sorry I have to say this or to say that this is what I feel, but there, there are many people who, in choosing a work that they perceive as genre, let us say The Drowning Girl, which is one of the most dazzling novels uh, of of the past few years, maybe the past decade, it's really beautiful. It's absolutely serious and intent, and it's just beautifully imaginative. There are people who will say, oh, Caitlin Kieran, I know, she's that horror writer, and we'll we'll read it through, through those bars and and uh, and be unmoved. Um, say, oh, this is the horror stuff here. All this stuff, I don't quite get it, but this must be the horror stuff. Um, it's it's a way of it for for readers of that stripe. It's a way of closing off experience because it's a way of denying the actual merit or matter that that is before you. 
Um, it's sort of the opposite way around. Um, I've gotten a lot of, you know, I've seen a lot of readers, reviewers, um, blog sites who've said, well, why did this win the Bram Stoker Award? Oh, this isn't scary. <laughs> this didn't scare me. And they're really angry about it. And it's like, I, it says at the beginning of the book, this is the book it is, and therefore it may not be the book you expect it to be. Yeah. And you know, that's warning you not to go into this book thinking, well, Caitlin R. Kiernan writes horror stories, but people do it anyway because yeah. we are placed, you know, Peter and I have been placed in these boxes. Everybody who's a fantasy writer, you know, whether they're called, I did my most recent collection, The Ape's Wife, I very intentionally set out to do a collection that completely denied this whole idea I'm a horror writer. There's science fiction, there's, there's high fantasy, there's mm -hmm. horror, there's weird fiction, there's everything, because I wanted to show the range that I'm capable of. And, and yeah, you know, I do, it, it can be extremely restrictive from the way that we're received by the public. But you, isn't part of what you would want to do is to expand, to do kind of what Jonathan said, that to subvert the reader's expectations to some extent. And Peter, you've done this your whole career. I mean, every, every horror novel, whatever it's, 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 certainly there are horror novels there, mm -hmm. but every novel seems to go beyond what the readers of the previous novel would expect. And the floating dragon readers must be really frustrated by now. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I would think. I mean, because I, I really tried to do everything I could think of in that particular mode, and I didn't, I wasn't quite aware that that's what I was doing while I was doing it, I was having too good a time writing every single thing that came <laughs> into my mind. But uh, in a way, I was exhausting myself in that mode. I was ex or exhausting that mode in myself um, so, so, so that it, it, it would be not available to me in that way. All the material, all the emotional material, all the ways of seeing things that inform that were, were still very, very present in me. and. Um, <sighs> Alas, the, the, after that, the book I, I wrote after that was The Talisman of Stephen King, which people said, oh, we thought this was going to be a horror novel. Uh, this, is a, this is a fantasy novel. And, you know, it is pretty much a fantasy novel. There's no, there's no doubt. It's, it's a very nice alternate world, you know, quest novel. Um, but after that, I, I wrote a novel about Vietnam veterans uh, having odd, disturbing, strange experiences while 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 searching for a friend of theirs, I think they think of has gone off the rails, and I got I got much deeper Im emotionally than than I had before that, and I was very very pleased with that book, and I wanted to stay at the level that I th I thought I'd set for myself, and when the book came out, every single reviewer. In, in the country, I think, who reviewed it, began by saying, horror writer Peter Straub's latest novel of horror is. So someone said, the horror in this is not what you're expecting. <laughs> um, the, I had a, 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 an even less pleasant version of that experience uh, the last time I published a novel, which was far too long ago. The, uh, the, the novel is called Dark Matter. A very intelligent, well-read, well-informed re woman re reviewed it in the Washington Post. And you could tell she liked it at first. And she, she said she uttered uh, agreeable, com complimentary things ab ab about the way she'd felt about the book when she first started reading it. And then she said, but then I discovered that the novel was junk because it had the supernatural in it. 
and therefore it couldn't be any good. I thought, well, honey, you should have sent it back. You know? <laughs> it's not, uh, so I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm uneasy and unhappy about that when I see that woman, woman's name somewhere, I don't, I don't respond cheerfully. <laughs> So much I could say, and, and this constant fear of, of being too offensive. Um, it felt to me like, to, since you said what you said about the drowning girl, yeah. um, there are three novels in the last 50 years in what would be called ghost stories, fan uh, dark fantasy, whatever. Um, the Haunting of Hill House, House of Leaves, and Ghost Story that I think of as the novels that have had this huge effect on me. And... Um, you know, I cannot tell you how much I adore Ghost Story. It is, it is just beyond brilliant. And, and then, you know, it felt like when you wrote, um, was it, it was Coco. Yeah. I felt like, and I'm always, always, I don't want people ascribing intention to me. I don't want people saying, well, this is what Caitlin was trying to do. But what it felt like to me is when I read that book, and I was really young. Yeah. When I read that book, it felt like you were taking this big <laughs> breath. Yeah. Like you were... You were shrugging off a weight. Yeah. Like you were going off and doing this other wonderful thing. And I didn't, I didn't have a problem with the fact that it wasn't a supernatural novel. It's still, it was, it's not about whether it's that. It's about whether it's a good novel. Yeah, you're a good reader. Uh, it's, <laughs> I mean, because she came to, with, with, without being inhibited by whatever preconceptions she, she already had, and she was willing to uh, greet what was there on the page? I mean, that but we, most, we want every reader to do that, but not, not every reader even wants to. But uh, the, Coco was a bestseller. I mean, a lot of readers must have done what Caitlin did. Yeah. Oh, I'm not allowed to grouse. You, <laughs> you know, you also worry, did it sell on its own merits, or did it sell because oh, yeah. they think you're a fantasy writer or a horror writer, and then they're disappointed? I, I don't know. Of what I, and, but, but the book is so aggressively not... Fantasy. The, no, nobody could really mistake it for that. It's if it's any, if it's like any uh, standard genre novel, it's it's like a crime novel yeah. because somebody's been doing horrible things, and we want to find out who's done them. Because I wrote this, the person who's done the horrible things is the person secretly we love the most, and uh, is the most damaged, the most beautiful. Um, this <laughs> I think aside from the people who write, let's say, Amazon reviews, yeah. aside from the people who get pissed because I write about lesbians or transsexuals or whatever, yeah. the people who piss me off the most are the people, can I say piss? The people who piss me off the most are the ones who say, well, this just didn't scare me. And well, the truth is, I wasn't trying to scare no, you. Right. I've never, ever sat down and written anything with the intention of scaring anyone. And people won't believe that. I do not sit down and think, oh, what scares me? How do I scare someone? That's got nothing to do with what I'm doing. And uh, there's this belief from the reader that if they've spent X amount of money on my books, they deserve to scare from it. And they deserve to be uncomfortable turning off the lights that night. And some of yeah, them are. Some of them say it. that. And yeah. if that's your reaction, awesome. But my, react, my intent in writing these books are so incredibly complicated you know, you can't say that was my intention. Yeah, that's right. One, one, one's intention is often not simple. Uh, in fact, it's made up of a whole, whole series of influences, of feelings. It's a, it's a product of things that have happened to, to, to one. 
And it is, it seems to me also unduly limiting when, when you get all this baggage, all, all this kind of wealth of, of, of material, it seems to be un, un, unduly limiting and uh, in a way blinkered to flatly claim that the, that the material and realm and world of fantasy is not also real, isn't a part of the real tr tradition because in our own lives, we, we brush up against uh, the irrational and the visionary, if we're lucky, um, the, you know, the, the non-Newtonian realm. We, we, we brush against those things all the time. We, we have hints of them. We have suggestions of them. We meet them in dreams. We meet them in fantasies. These are things that we carry with us through life. And it's, I'm a, I'm a little tired of having it, uh, though it has been, it's been ruthlessly separated from realistic fiction, what science fiction people call mim mimetic fiction, for for decades and decades, but that 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 doesn't seem fair fair to me. It's like you're trying to reunite something that got sort of weeded out of literature. I mean, one of the things that uh, I think Brian Aldiss always insisted that horror was was a device, was something that any writer used, and his his examples were were, were Dickens and Henry James. And in other words, horror appeared in what we now call mainstream literature on a fairly regular basis yeah. and was never considered, well, it's not true that it was never considered its own thing, but it was certainly considered a resource that any writer had access to. That's right. Um, it's, it's, it's a way to tell a certain kind of story and, and its affect is something that can be usefully built into all kinds of other stories uh, and it adds another layer. Going back to the description of this podcast, um, it, it, it was almost, no offense, <laughs> it was almost an offensive description. It's like, why do writers who are perfectly capable of writing realistic mm -hmm. literary fiction, you didn't see my air quotes, um, why do we stoop to writing fantasy? And I mean, that's what it felt like to me. And it's like, well, for one thing, I've always laughed at the phrase literary Literature. Well, yeah. It's well, like, yeah. wait a minute. <laughs> literary is the adjective derived from literature. I write literature. Yeah. And I write literature that often deals with the fantastic or the grotesque or the macabre or whatever. But I just, I, I, I loathe that, that segregation. Yeah. No offense. I should have called it the fantastic uses of literature. That might be. <laughs> <a> <laughs> 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 yes, good. Now you know. Yeah. But essentially, no, that's what's, that's. I don't know if I had anything in mind actually at all, but to the extent that I did, if you're writing a novel, fantasy is something you can use in that novel. It, it, it fa the fantastic has uses for any novelist, uh, which doesn't necessarily mean that you descend into fantasy, or if you're a fantasy reader that hates mainstream fiction, that you ascend into fantasy. Uh, I mean, one of the things that works, it works probably, it's more noticeable in science fiction maybe than other areas. As much as we complain about being ghettoized and compartmentalized. As, as you've both had this experience, if you write something that doesn't look like something that's already in the ghetto, you get people outraged because it's not what their expectations is. In other, in other words, you, you, you get uh, the reviewers, well, like possibly the Washington Post review you were talking about, who um, are disappointed that something doesn't stay in its pen. And on the other hand, you have 
people within our field who, if they read, a, let's say, a Margaret Atwood novel, um, get offended because here's somebody coming into our pen without paying dues. Right. Yeah, that's right. Whereas if you just get rid of the idea that there's a pen, mm-hmm. then we're all free to yeah. read and to write. We can graze where we like. Yeah. We've just <laughs> <laughs> we will be free range. Free range literature, yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I guess part of, I mean, we, we generated a title and a description for this because normally the nature of this conversation is a loose and free-flowing one rather than one that, that particularly sticks to a topic. But I, I guess part of the perspective of it was that, you, you know, you've both written fine novels that could be described as almost anything. You know, you know the actual, the horror label doesn't fit. That I mean, they have non-realistic elements which could be interpreted either as actually having happened or not having happened, but nonetheless are integral to the text and explain or imply a lot about what's happening. Yeah. And I, I, I guess one aspect then of, of the question of the panel is what sort of things do, do using fantastical elements bring to a text for you that, that attract you to do, doing it again and again? Because whilst both of you have written, I mean, you've written mainstream fiction of a type, and Caitlin certainly has written across all sorts of genres and around and through and up and down. And uh, so, why what, what keeps drawing you back to this? Because because, because as, for as much as neither of you, you know, regularly write straight horror fiction, nonetheless, you dance around the realistic. Yeah, I wish I had a copy of Poe's poem alone, but to sort of loosely quote um, the, the the demon in my view line, you know, this is what I see. Yeah. I look at the cloud, and what you you know what someone might see, I see, I see grotesque shapes often. God and bless you, Caleb. <laughs> <laughs> what? God bless you, Caleb. Oh. <laughs> I I don't know. I mean, honestly, I have a lot of trouble. I, I thought about that answer because I knew that was key to this, and I thought about trying to formulate an articulate response to that, and I just don't know that I can. It's the way I see the world. Yeah. It's what it I'm drawn a, to. It's a point of view. Um, uh, sometimes it's frustrating. Sometimes I want to break out of it and get away with it, and the ghosts keep creeping back yeah. in, no matter what, what I do. Whatever it is come, comes creeping back in. I've, once, uh, decades ago, I was standing on State Street in Madison, Wisconsin, with a nice, amiable cousin of mine who was like the Secretary of Agriculture for the state of Wisconsin, and a farm boy. He was, he was a, a, a wonderful, smart, jolly down-the-earth soul, there came past us on State Street a sort of cart where people, some of them sober, some of them not, were for some reason being driven up State Street by, by, uh, by some kind of vehicle, a, 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 the cab of a truck or a, tra- or a tractor, I forget which. And my friend said, oh, they look like they're having fun. And I said, it looks like a tumbrel. He said, <laughs> he said what's a tumbrel? And when I explained to him what a tumbrel was, the, the device, the, you know, the cart that carried French aristocrats to the guillotine, he said, oh, it's no wonder you're that kind of writer. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's built in. It's, it is, I mean, it, with me, it's so reflexive that I had to kind of turn in the humor just to make, you know, so that everybody wasn't always saying, oh, Peter, will you please clam up? I'm curious, uh, since you've talked about authorial intent and people assigning authorial intent, uh, you mean, to what extent, and I don't mean this in a glib or a shallow way, to what extent as you create a text, 
are you aware of your own intent? To what extent does it evolve for you as, as, as you create the text? You know, do, you, you know, do you become more aware of what you, attempt, you, you intend to do as you enter, enter the text? It does change. For me, it changes. I start out at a point, and I move toward another point. Um, Shirley Jackson once said, never write toward an ending, never have an ending in mind and write toward it. I don't write with outlines. I write with very few notes. I rarely might write more than one draft, and I just sit down and I write, and here's where I begin. And, um, and I may have an intent. You know, India Phelps sits down and says, I'm going to write a ghost story. Mm. Well, wherever it goes after that, you know, that, that's why I'm writing. I'm writing to see where it goes, yeah. and my intention does change. Is that answering the question? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. I mean, just as I'm curious if, if you find, looking back at, it, at, at one of your, your stories or your novels, uh, do you find intent in it that you weren't aware of at the time? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I, I, I hope to find, while, while I, is this thing on? Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, 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 it sounds so dead. I hope to find a, um, an, a, a discovery and a meaning and a center uh, as I go along, I always have, I'm, I begin with more material than Caitlin. Um, 90% of the time, or 75% of the time, I, I take, uh, I walk 20, 40 pages into the book and I hang an abrupt left because something has occurred to me that seems to, it's shinier and more appealing than, than the material I'd already set in the place. I am always waiting to be told by the book what it wants to be about. And I'm, what, part of the reason I do write is to, get, is to get into that discovery, that moment when the floor falls away and I say to myself, oh, that's what I'm writing about. Or, oh, that's why I'm writing this book. Um, if I know all that stuff at the beginning, it'd be an awfully arid, uh, kind of fiction. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know if this is an example or not. When I was writing The Drowning Girl, um, I got sick, and I had this horrible, horrible fever. And there's a sec chapter seven. I think of it as seven. Yes. Um, I was really too sick to be writing, and I got up, and I wrote. Mm -hmm. And I wrote pretty much all of seven in one stream of fever. And I... And it, and it became the heart of the book for me. Yeah. You know, if, if I want to show you the heart of the book, it's in seven. And it's because I was so ill. And I couldn't have seen that coming. I couldn't have planned that. Oh. And, um, and for me, when I had done that, like a couple of days later, looking back, I was like, God, how, I'll never write that good again. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for me, it's like writing a novel is an act of discovery. And That's as right. Peter was saying, if I plan it all out ahead of time, if I um, know where it's going, if I have all of my notes or a spreadsheet or what the hell ever, it's like, why even bother? I've already, exactly. I've already made the trip. It's like that fear of knowing the future. If I knew the future, why would I want to live? If I know where th everything that the book's going to be, why do I want to write it? That's exactly right. Why I, do you want to read it if you yeah. know everything that's going to be in it? Yeah. And a lot of people object to not knowing. Um, and they think we get it wrong if, uh, if we don't d deliver the kind of expectation that they have. Um, when, I, when I read The Drowning Girl, I, I was um, lost in it. I thought it was wonderful. I was going along. And then I came to this material that Caitlin's just talking about. And I didn't know that Caitlin had written it in a sort of a fever. 
All I knew was that something amazing, something molten was happening in front of me. The book had just folded in on itself and, 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 and become extraordinary. And I, Caitlin, forgive me, I said to myself, I didn't know Caitlin could write like that. <laughs> well, I didn't know Caitlin could write like that. And honestly, I think getting sort of back to what we're talking about, it was freedom. It was complete yeah. freedom from the fever freed me from, from a lot of self-doubt and second guessing, um, which I'm constantly plagued by second guess. And, and honestly, this always sounds crappy when I say it, but I don't think about the reader. I never think about the reader. I'm thinking about me. I'm thinking about what I need to do for myself, for the book, and I second guess the hell out of myself. Yeah. And um, that one example, it, it freed me of second guessing myself and of all these thoughts about genre and everything. Yeah. But isn't writing, like, isn't writing like, like that, writing for yourself, the only way to create an, an honest text? I think so. Probably. Because, yeah, I mean, yeah. the reader, for all that every one of us are readers, is a construct of the, of, the, of the readers themselves. There's no way you can idealize or fictionalize a reader in your mind, mind's eye to, to write for in a useful way, I don't think. And I think it would be far too limiting to attempt to do so. You'd end up with very st you know, strange kinds of texts if you did. Yeah, the closest um, I come, and probably Caitlin too, uh, toward th thinking of the reader is trying to c come to some kind of judgment on what is working in the book itself. Uh, that is, what, what, what effects have come off and wh what may have failed, because you, you want the book to be about the moments and, and movements that it has declared it wants to be about. And you, you don't want to flub that. You, you, in a way, you want to get yourself out of the way. And you, 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 you want the book to, as if it pre-existing somewhere, to come through you and, and, and emerge onto the page without all of your crud in the way. You know? To be just itself purely. I always thought the ideal form of the of the novel, whatever novel, would be some object that wouldn't be able to sit on a table, but would rise above it, humming a little bit, <laughs> be, because of its tensile internal strengths and and um, you know it's, it's your inspiredness. You know, um, you guys are so messing up everything that's taught in every MFA program in the world right now. <laughs> Yes. Which is why I don't teach writing. <laughs> Which is why no one will ever ask me to teach writing. Um, well, it's one reason. I've never taught writing. That and the and that and the problem that I always say, why the hell do you want to do this? Um, it'll it'll ruin your love of writing and reading. It'll ruin your don't life. Don't do it. It'll ruin your life. You'll be sick. You won't have any insurance. Whatever. Get a job. I'm uh, <laughs> I'm on uh, to to walk twelve steps back into the really grim real world. I am on the board of uh, the Hardship Fund of the Authors League. We get letter after letter after letter from people of all ages, but the people we're looking for are people who've been writing a long time and have actually published things, uh, ideally uh, quite a few things, and who are down on their luck. We get letters from writers of all kinds that were down on their luck, but drastically down on their luck, and you read one case where there's blood all over the pa paper and then there's blood all over the table and eventually this goes on and on and on and on and eventually you 
realize nobody should ever try to do this. There is no guarantee whatsoever. There's no, there's, there's no cushion, there's no safety, there's no pension fund unless you make it yourself. Um, it's, it's, boy, you, you really have to want to do it. Um, I was going to say, I haven't categorically convinced everybody in the room that they yeah. shouldn't write. And I'm, I'm, and I'm fairly sure if we had, if we if we had a show writers. of hands, and then on the podcast you won't see this, but if we had a show of hands, isn't everybody convinced that they shouldn't write now? Pretty much. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. Kevin, yeah. Kevin is the one. Kevin, Kevin will not write now. <laughs> so given that, the obvious question is why? Because, you know, you could go Honestly, roller skating or sell ice cream. Is this, is, is this actually? Yes, it is. Honestly, I was trained as a vertebrate paleontologist, and it's what I wanted to do. It's still what I wanted to do. It's what my life should have been, but things happened. <laughs> and things that are too complicated to explain happened, and they're too personal to explain happened. And people ask me this question because I've kept an online blog since November 21st, 2001, and sometimes I'm far too honest in it. Mm. And the truth is I'm good at it. I discovered I was good at it. I could make more money at it than I could make at anything else, which is pathetic. And, um, and it's my job, and it's what I do. And it doesn't mean that when I say it's my job, I'm not saying I'm just turning out crap that you know, it doesn't mean anything to me. It means a huge amount to me. Mm. But that doesn't make it easy, and it doesn't make me enjoy it. But it's what I can do, and so I do it. And that's as honorable a reason for doing it as any other reason for doing it. To say that it is one job, one's job is to, in a way, say the most beautiful thing possible. Uh, that it, it has chosen you almost. Um, when, when I was a small child, or not a small child, but a child anyhow, um, I, once saw, <laughs> I, I, I once saw a blank uh, sheet, sheet of paper somewhere on a television program, and, and it was a blank notebook uh, with line pages and a pencil on, on the top of a pad, and something in me leapt, and I thought, oh my God, look at that. That's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And uh, I could not communicate this uh, intensely strange thought to anybody around me, A, because they're in my family, and, <laughs> and secondly, because nobody in my family would understand it, and most of them would, be, would uh, jeer at me for it. But there is, there is the feeling that it is what you really have to do, what the, one, the one thing in the world that you're really, really good at, and you get good at it by working hard, but also because it helps you be you. Yes. you know? There was a, the, one, the one class, I've, and, and I know I've told you this before, Peter, the, the one writing class I had, which didn't do me any good, but Joseph Heller was the teacher. And it was not, not that long after Catch-22, so he wasn't a New York literary celebrity. He was just a guy who had written a very good novel. And one of the, one of the other students who had clearly been, actually picked up some novel, I don't know what it was, and looked at the little bio on the flyleaf, and this is back when, it looked like all author bios. They, they all looked like bad 60s. Yeah, he was a lineman for the county and you know, worked on a <laughs> shrimp boat. For the Green Bay oh, right, exactly. And so, and so the kid was saying, look at all these jobs. What, which one should I do if I want to be a writer? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, but Heller's answer was, pick one. Anything you do, if you're a writer, you don't, it doesn't make any difference. You have no choice. Yeah. Um, because he was working in an ad agency for 10 years writing Catch-22 on index cards. Wow. And uh, it's what spare time he had. You leave us speechless, Gary. I was going to, oh, you go ahead. 
Okay. Go ahead. So you, you've said that you, Caitlin, particularly you've said today that you don't like people assigning intent to you as the author of your work, which strikes me as perfectly reasonable. But you still create work that is open to multi, you know, different interpretation. Why not simply, you know, w what is it that, that stops you just not, not simply writing the essay about the book rather than the book, I guess? Hmm. I mean, you know, because you know, you know, pres presumably anybody assigning a tent isn't doing it for nef you know, nefarious reasons. God, I don't know how to answer that question. Um, because it'd be dull as hell. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> because I'm, I'm fascinated with, I mean, if you look at the books I love, if you look at the books I really love, like um, Ulysses, or Joyce, it's like, it's like the multiple layers. You know, I want to create layers and layers and layers and, and all sorts of. Um, I'm do and ah, Jesus, I'm creating a quilt for me, a tapestry for me. I'm, I'm looking at this and all these little, all these little things I can do and all these ways I can invert and 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 transgress and and. Literary term, literary term, literary term. Um, who would, I, why would I want to write an essay about it? Exactly. But why would I want to write a novel about it? I, well, if we can get back to genre for a minute, because we, 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 we've, we've trampled it already, but, um, but okay, I'm, I'm trying to think of something, Peter, but in your case, when you're doing, um, if we can talk about the Kathleen Tierney novels. Oh, God. Well, oh. <laughs> okay. The, the recent, the, the recent embarrassment. Do but it looked, it looked like you were having fun. I did at first. Okay, oh. so very, very quickly, um, as a joke, because I loathe paranormal fiction, <laughs> paranormal romance, whatever the hell. As a joke, I wrote one chapter of something, and I sent it to my editor, and it was really a joke. And she, and this was right when I turned in The Drowning Girl. And she wrote, and, and I went to New York to meet with her, and she said, and she's sitting there with The Drowning Girl, and she's got this one chapter, and she says, this is the most compelling thing you've ever written. <laughs> this is where they it, are. It's about, it's about a junkie who's been bitten by a vampire and a werewolf on the same night. She's a total fuck up. And, um, and it's just, it was a joke, and she said, finish this book. Caitlin, I'm so glad you said that because I couldn't understand why you were writing that book and the, when you wrote me an email about it. And, so, and, and I just so wrote something I said, about a okay, vampire. Okay, well, I'll write it, but I won't write it under my name. So I'm going to write it as Kathleen Tierney. And, um, well, my editor wouldn't go for that. So it wound up Caitlin R. Kiernan writing as Kathleen Tierney, which totally subverted the whole reason. <laughs> and, and then they offered me a three-book contract. <laughs> and that's money. That pays the rent. That wow. pays the grocery bills. And, and by the second book, I hated those people in that book. Uh -huh. And I, I just finished, I guess, what, this year? I just finished the last book in that. And oh, my God, I was so glad it was over. Uh -huh. I managed not to kill them. <laughs> I managed not to kill my, my main character. But, you know, what was the question? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember at this point. Kathleen Tierney okay. died okay, a Kathleen horrid Tierney. death. But my point is, and actually I thought the first one was a lot of fun. I had fun with the first yeah. one, but by the second one, the joke, it was a, it was a joke. But, it, and but you just said this whole thing came out of your hatred of paranormal romance. Now, yeah. if, you, if, you want to destroy paro, if you want to destroy paranormal no, romance, itself. how better than to write it? Yeah. 
Um, and I think by this, I think by the second one, and certainly by the third one, I was actually writing paranormal romance. Yeah. I had sort oh, of, oh I had dear. sort of become the thing I hated because yeah. you just, I can be funny for short stretches. It's mm. not the thing I do. Mm. I'm not great at being funny, and it was a first funny book. And after that, it started getting not so funny anymore. And by the end, oh. it's just this grim <laughs> novel with all those things you would expect. And the cover even looks, the, the cover for the last one looks like a paranormal romance. Oh dear, like a. Anyway, okay, that's well, a strange digression. Uh, the only I'm just trying to think of something, but, but okay, Pete, should all go out and buy those novels. Yeah, buy uh, or let's go buy Caitlin's. Seriously, I was um, I, I was thinking uh, rather before Caitlin entered into that extremely entertaining uh, description <laughs> of, of, of the creation of several novels of of um, how how the the technique and the matter of fiction. In, is impressed upon a, a, a writer. I, I, I'm using myself as a uh, case history. Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm thinking of what happens to a reader when you turn a blank page and you see a you know a white space and that, and then you see a line of type that says something like, at four o'clock in the afternoon, Dr. Oleg Oleg Smith. Walked out, walked outside of his house and fell down on a sidewalk. Um, period. When you say that, when you write that, when you read it, a kind of music starts. Uh, you know, something is tuning itself up. Uh, I cannot but find those moments filled with intense beauty. They uh, they say everything. It's right there. It's all mm -hmm. going to happen as long as you believe that part. You are going to be in, you know, if the guy doesn't flub it up. Um, it, it, it's, it's something about the intense reality of the fictional, the the way in which the fictional melts into the real world in your mind, right? Um, something I've often said is that all novels are fantasy, all short stories are yeah, fantasy. Exactly. Did it happen? Did yeah. it actually happen? No, it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it is by definition, fantasy. Whether it has ghosts or elves or hobbits or what the hell ever, yeah. it did not happen. And it will not happen. Yeah. Somebody dreamed it up. Well, yeah. one word that used to be used for that kind of feeling was numinous. Uh, you'd yeah. get this in, um, I, I don't know why I've always felt this way, because I, because I was imprinted at an early age um, by Catherine Mansfield, of all people. Huh. And uh, things like the garden party always yeah. struck me as being something numinous was happening. Something was happening beyond what you were seeing here. And it always, in a strange way, felt like fantasy, even though you can't get farther away from actual fantasy yeah. than Catherine Mansfield's story. That's right. I think it's um, useful in this regard and I interesting in this regard to remember that this convention we're at is in, set up in part to honor Ro Robert Aikman who wrote stories in which there are very little, except for a few really oddball stories, that, that can be considered p paranormal or f fantasy, but which the whole atmosphere participates in the kind of fantasy that descends upon a mind that isn't too sure where it is. Uh, the reader, most often in Aikman stories, isn't too sure where he is, yet at the same time, you always know you're somewhere real. 
something is going on, some, some water is boiling somewhere, and, and the wallpaper is moving, and the, you know, the, the guy making the dinner doesn't look too trustworthy, <laughs> and the door locks. Um, you, it, 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 it happens around you. It, it, it happens in the story, and we, we respond to these stories because they do correspond to some, some, something that happens in our lives. I was going to say, uh, uh, yeah. The, uh, what, is, what, what, what is called fantasy need, need not contain any, anything fantastic at all, really. I think that uh, to some extent this, the World Fantasy Convention has been reasonably open about recognizing that. As a matter of fact, we were talking about Coco earlier. Didn't that win a world fantasy award? Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so here's your deliberate non-fantasy novel winning the top fantasy award, and nobody seemed to object to it. No, nobody minded. It was very nice. And I've, I've had this. Yeah. I, was <laughs> I was very happy to have, yeah. you know, walked over my little Lovecraft module. Module. Module, <laughs> that's a good word. But um, I've had the experience of Reading well, some of the stories in your collected stories—I can't remember the title of the one I'm thinking—but there was the sort of a steampunk story. Was it the Stone Dancer? Yes, right. Hmm. Um, and thinking well, in reading, thinking a couple of days later, well, that wasn't really what I thought it was. It didn't really cross the line into a science fiction story, which it looked like it was. And we were—I t- was talking with uh, Ellen Datlow in this room last night, and we started talking about Mr. Club and Mr. Cuff, hmm. uh, which Ellen loves and adores and should. Um, but I, there was another story where I think two or three days after I read it, and I thought, there's nothing supernatural in that story. I thought there was. No. It felt like there was. It looked like there was. That's interesting. Mm. But that's very often like our actual experiences yeah. of mm. the weird. It's like something happens. And in the moment, it seems like something's happening. But then a couple of days later, you come up with a rational explanation, or it just doesn't seem all that damn weird anymore. Yeah. And, I mean, that, that's an effect that I think if a writer achieves that effect, they've really achieved something. Mm-hmm. That's right. I know people who read the Gorman Gas trilogy, Titus, and years later realized it's not a, it wasn't a fantasy after all. Yeah. It just looked like one. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're probably getting towards the end of our podcast because we've got about another five or ten minutes to go. And I thought we might take a moment, even though I'm not sure that the subject today has been exactly conducive to it, to throw the podcast open to questions from the audience for a moment to see if they've got anything that they'd like to ask can, of our panelists about the conversation or anything relevant. Will, 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 will they be heard? Yeah, well, yeah, we'll repeat them. We can do that. We can do that. Okay, good. Yeah. Does that, any questions? Yes. Yeah. Sir. This was comparing this to Bruce Sterling's idea of slipstream. I think there, yeah, I, there is a, a f- phenomenon called slipstream, and the, the, the questioner w- is wondering whether or not his life rolls on, whether or not things seem to be getting weirder and weirder, thereby meaning that the, what is weird is the real, I guess, is what you mean. And I think 
that is a matter of um, what particular people are open to. If you have what is called an imagination, then that kind of thing happens. I know plenty of people who appear not to have an imagination and, and who just will dully march through things saying, well, that's not real, that's not real, that couldn't happen. Um, if you look at our politics, if I dare, may, you know, <laughs> may dare refer to that realm, uh, the, the unimaginable happens over and over, you know, with no, um, with no actual reason apart from people's passions and fantasies. Mm -hmm. okay. Any other questions? Basically, the question is how the business of literature impinges on the creation of literature? Yeah. Okay. I like the idea of getting loaded at the bar as some, something to do with the business of literature. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for many writers, it you know, seems to have a part. I've always been slightly puzzled, though I'm, 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 I'm sufficiently entitled uh, to be able to say that, um, of the puzzled by the point of view of this fantasy as a place where people can do business. I do know that people come here to meet agents, that agents come here in part to troll for new clients, that editors are here to confer with their writers and to meet new writers. All that's fine. Um, it's good, it's useful. Uh, it doesn't, it has nothing to do with my experience of the convention, and I suspect it has very little to do with Kate, Caitlin's also. Are we, are we talking about the convention, or are we talking about, in a broader sense, the effect of the business of writing on the act of writing? I, I would say the broader sense. Um, I mean, if you talk about that, I've got my poor agent going, Caitlin, if you'd only write a book that people wanted to read, <laughs> I might could make you some money. And I can't seem to get in line with that. Um, I wish I could. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's constant. When, when you're, you know, when you're having to fight to make money, it's a constant struggle between doing the right thing by yourself and doing the right thing by me as an artist and, and trying to recognize that I do have to pay bills. Sadly, that's where the Kathleen Tierney crap came from. My editor's gonna murder me for saying that. <laughs> I, I uh, of course, have had to deal with this very question all my w working life. I never wanted to have another job. I, um, I, I, I knew from the time I was 16 that if I started to write, I'd never be able to do anything else. And so I put it off for, for a long time. But once I started to do it, I, had, I was married. And then eventually, once I became a little bit secure, I had children. And then ever after, I had to make, make enough money to keep this uh, little circus afloat. And that meant that I, I always had, in some sense, to have as one of my goals the, uh, to at least interest or please a, 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 a sizable quantity of, of, uh, of, of the reading public. It's not, I couldn't, I couldn't turn my back. So sometimes I thought when I was turning my back that that in itself would be kind of interesting to readers. If, if, I, if I did something flagrantly 
non-commercial, as in a moment that Gary always particularly liked, when, when a character invented by another character in a book uh, suddenly wakes up and realizes that his whole world has changed and he doesn't know it's because his author has just been killed. Um, <laughs> I mean, this, this was not written out of uh, a desire to reach uh, the, the Amazon reader, to use that as shorthand. But on the other hand, I was hoping at least some of those people would um, be, be interested in, 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 the, in the sheer narrative depth of it. Um, this is in the almost exact center of In the Night Room. In the Night Room. And some of yeah. those Amazon readers are probably still deep in that chapter within a chapter within a chapter, <laughs> trapped forever, uh, unable to write comments. My editor thought I would take it out, and I thought... Well, first of all, my friend Gary really liked it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought, that, you know, I, I, was, I was happy for that uh, little flare in my mind, and it felt like in inspiration, and I didn't want to give it up. Okay, well, I think we might wind up. We with have that to. One. Peter has a panel at 5 o'clock. Okay, we'll wind up. First, well, I would like, a, like to thank <laughs> both of you for, for making yourself available for the podcast, for tolerating the dull, stumbling questions that Gary and I were able to generate <laughs> to sort of yeah. get us through the 55 minutes of this. Okay. So thank you, Peter, very much. You're I hope welcome. you all... Thank you all for coming. And thank you, Caitlin. We'd also like to thank... We'd also like to thank uh, the World Fantasy Con Convention for allowing us to have the, the podcast here live. We will be at World Fantasy 41 in Saratoga Springs next year, and we hope to see you there. And until then, now, Gary, I'll see you next week. Next week. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. That was fun.